Good morning, Southbridge. Wow, what a great morning so far, right? Wow. You know, there's uh, always a testimony to be had. Every Sunday, we could do this every time we meet, just hear from people how God's changed them and how God's using them. In fact, this Thursday, you can hear another testimony at Celebrate Recovery at 7 o'clock at the church office. A gentleman by the name of Carlos will be sharing how God has changed his life. And everyone is welcome to come and celebrate that and consider your own lives in light of that testimony. This morning, we're looking at the testimony of the Word of God. And we're continuing our series, Red Letters, which is really a short study we've done this summer on some of the commands of Christ. Really, ultimately, falling underneath, Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples, teaching everyone to obey what Christ has commanded. So in order to know what he commanded, we have to get into God's word. And so we're just looking at a handful of them this summer. This morning is no different. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn to John chapter 15 with me. John chapter 15. Now, in this context, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. In fact, it's really moments before he'll be betrayed and then ultimately before he goes to the cross making a way for mankind to the Father, for those who will believe and trust in Christ for what he's done. And so these words are serious words, solemn words, and words to be applied today. John chapter 15, verse 4 is where we find the next command we're looking at. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we've looked at several commands this summer, repent and ask, seek and knock, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so this morning, the command to consider for our own lives is to abide in Christ, to abide in me. So what does the word abide mean? Well, it's an agricultural term, and so Jesus is sharing really a a gardening story here, an illustration. It means to uh, sink, abide means to sink the roots down deep into the soil so as to gain sustenance. I'm not much of a green thumb. But uh, if you've done any planting, you get the imagery. You don't have to live in these times to get the imagery. For those of you that put a Christmas tree in your house, and you have to water that tree for that season, um, which should probably begin November 1st and end January 1st, maybe, I declare. But when you don't water that tree, obviously it's, it's really been removed from the soil. So it's kind of half-life. But then when you throw that tree in the backyard like ours still is, it's gone. Right? There's no life for that tree. It's the same then as Christ is saying to abide in him is to be connected to him. To abide in Jesus is to be attached to him so that you become like him in your day-to-day living. His character flows into your life and through you for the good of others. Ultimately, to accomplish the mission of making disciples for Christ and for God's glory. That is to bear fruit. Now every command is a context and we look at the context each week. So look at verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1. This whole chapter is, is rich, and we don't have much time, so we'll just go through it verse to verse here, through verse 12. But look at the first verse. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Your translation might say gardener. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For anyone does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In this story, Jesus is the vine, clearly. And God is the gardener, the one that's doing a work. You saw the pruning there, which would be like a discipline or making way so that fruit would grow. 
And so the branches are people. Just as branches have to be attached to the vine for nourishment and to bear fruit, so too must followers of Jesus be attached, connected to, ongoing connection to Christ to produce what God desires. And what does God desire that we produce, loved ones? The text tells us fruit. So we should ask as good Bible students, what is the fruit of abiding in Christ? Fruit in this chapter is what is produced and being attached to Jesus. We display what we receive. Often it's like um, you live out what you've been taught. When we're attached to Jesus, we receive love, true love, unconditional love. In verse 9, abide in me is replaced with the idea of abide in my love. It's the same idea. Logically then, when the, when the disciples are connected to Christ, they receive from Christ love. Connected to the vine, what happens is true otherworldly love then would flow through Christ, through the disciples, and all those that are followers of Jesus, including you and I today if we're so inclined, to a world that needs this love. Jesus uses another story to talk about what fruit really is, and fruit really being, in the end, people. In John chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, he's instructing people to say that this world is like a harvest. It's ready. It's like grain ready to be taken in, and yet there's not very many workers. The fruit, the harvest, then, is, is people. And people need Christ, and they're going to receive Christ to those that are connected to Christ. That is God's plan. That's the commission. Not everyone is a worker for the Lord, though. You know, that's probably true of our crowd here today. Some are and some aren't. Just as not every branch in the forest is connected to the trunk of a tree or to the soil that's needed to the vine. And so in the story, the unconnected branch represents simply people that aren't connected to Christ. You saw the imagery there of those that are burned we have, to know, we have to believe that branches can't mean disciples because if you said that all branches are all disciples, then that would conclude that some of the branches are discarded as if they were naughty and since they weren't doing a good enough job, they've been discarded. No, if you've been brought in and grafted into the vine, then you're in. So branches have to be people and some are connected and some aren't. So a question we should ask before moving on is, how does one become attached to Christ? What's your answer? See, your answer is probably comes from your heritage or your training or your Bible study. It may have something to do with thinking or doing or having an experience. All are true. The answer is one becomes grafted or connected to Christ by God's grace as he grants faith to believe in Jesus Christ that he is who he says he is and he did what he did for you. Now, you can choose not to believe that and then you're going to attempt to navigate this life as a branch not connected. And being connected to Christ that involves our thinking, trust, belief, doctrine, our living, obedience, and doing, and our experiencing God in salvation, redemption, sanctification. And that relationship for me began 31 years ago, October 1984. But being connected isn't just a one-time event saying, I did a deed, I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, and all of a sudden now I'm doing my own thing because, well... I believe that a God exists. Or I believe that Jesus existed. That's not being connected. So connection is actually ongoing. You can't be disrooted from Christ once you've been connected, but the nourishment is needed on and on and on. And the only way then to bear fruit is through an ongoing connection with Christ because without him, the task of bearing fruit is impossible. Look at verse 5. That's what Jesus says. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, read this with me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you can do most things pretty well. (laughs) Now we live in a world that teaches us, a culture that teaches us that independence and isolation and self-help tips are the way to go. So our world and our culture and our society is teaching the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Which one is right? Yet if we're to be honest with ourselves, and even for those of you that are the most independent, you don't need anybody, people really de-energize you, you run your own business that doesn't require any people somehow, okay? Even you are dependent. We're actually interdependent as well. But you are dependent. That breath you just took was dependent upon something. Having a set of working lungs, of course. A brain that would trigger, hey, take, do that, okay, do that again. Air to be provided. Man, when I watch space movies, the first thing I think is, space is terrible. There's no air there. Don't want to be in space, so just so you know me better. We are completely dependent. This summer, if you go to the pool with, with your children, you go to the community pool, they're going to ask you, and I'm sure it's the same as this for me, time me. How long can I hold my breath? And guess what? They usually come up for breath if you're on watch. Why? We're dependent. We're dependent on food. If I took my contacts out, and my contacts are quite thick, I would be a beggar. So I cannot see. I've thought about the laser surgery, but the idea of a laser cutting a flat back and cleaning out the... I'm anti that. I can't see any need for that in Scripture. I just need Jesus. And these contacts. Then I'll be okay. We all have needs. And it's the same when it comes to the idea of producing a life, producing the fruit that God desires is impossible without God. It's logical, and yet many of us, we try to do it on our own. Try to be that good boy or good gal. Or moralists, deists, believe that a God exists. Jesus says that apart from him, it reminds me of the teaching in the book of Matthew, that with the things that are expected of us are impossible, but with God all things are possible. What are you completely dependent on? See, to abide is to depend, and to produce what God desires in our lives requires depending, ongoing dependence on Him. Without Him, the kind of produce He expects and desires and wants is impossible. So the question we have to ask is, how, to, how do we abide? And Jesus gives all this the teaching. Jesus is the best teacher. He gives, us, gives it all to us. Number one, if you're a note-taker, write this down. I think these are pretty good points. Number one, to abide in Christ is the trust in His position. Who does He say He is? The text tells us that He is the vine, and people, disciples are branches. What position, role, or title does Jesus have in your life? Think about your life. Think about your view of God. Think about your view of Jesus, who is himself God. Savior, Redeemer, friend, taskmaster, absent father, Your answer reveals a lot about your relationship, your connection with Christ. Jesus says in this text that he is the vine. The book of John records uh, several I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the door and the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. More so, and there's more. All these descriptions reveal his position as a savior, sustainer, worthy leader of your and my life. This teaching of being the true vine then, and this is just for your own historical context of scripture, for the hearers, to hear this, to be able to read this when the scripture comes out would have been quite controversial. See, the vine vineyard imagery up to this point had always represented God and his covenant people. And now Jesus is saying this phrase, I am the true vine, which is essentially saying he's God. 
And the branches aren't just the covenant people of Israel, but anyone who desires to follow and abide in him. Jesus has some big things. And you and I have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? When you share your, your testimony with another person, it comes down to what they're going to do with Jesus. Do they think he's just a good moral teacher? Then that means he's mad because of the things he says about himself would be crazy. Is he who he says he is? And if you believe that, what are the ramifications for your and my life? Maybe we just pick the parts of Jesus that we like. You have to decide for yourself, will you trust in who he is as he says he is of himself? What, will you trust in him as the vine? Will you trust that he is the sustainer? Will you act as if he's the sustainer, the vine? That's his position. Trust, faith. This has always been and always will be what pleases God. To trust him. It's like a theme of our church. Every Sunday is about trust, it seems. To trust in the Lord. Is he trustworthy? See, a lot of times we use phrases that cause us to doubt his position. We use phrases like, if God is good, then why? But that already then, suppose that maybe he's not. We should say, since he's good, then I view my circumstances this way. That's trusting in his position. And these commands, this command to abide in him and to trust in his position as the vine, that's actually for our good. Isaiah chapter 26, 3 talks about the fruit of a dependent life. You will keep him in perfect peace, that's a fruit of God's spirit in our lives, whose mind, that's thinking, is stayed on you, trusting his position, because he trusts in you. Peace comes from trusting in God who he is. In light of any circumstance. When we refuse to trust in Jesus... In his position, you've probably experienced this as I have. This is what happens. Usually doubt, worry, hopelessness, despair, sin, and selfishness cloud our perspective then. Like wearing a helmet backwards, you can't see out of it. It clouds our perspective of who Jesus is. Trusting him means that, then that deep in our hearts, we acknowledge that he is who he says he is, and he'll do as he says he'll do. And then we live as we truly believe it. Abiding in him, trust that because of his position, he is doing right and good. So when you're speaking the gospel to someone and they want to throw the idea of if he's good, you trust in the front end that he's good because he says he is. He was kind and good enough to pursue you. How do you view him? Have you experienced Christ in this way, like as a sustainer? Abiding him then rests in his kindness. It assumes his kindness because his track record is flawless. If we don't trust in Christ in this way, actually what we're doing is we're putting someone or something else in his position every time. You're going to see this throughout the message, Lord willing. Only by trusting in Christ as he is in his position can we do the work that he intends, which is to, to bear fruit. Jesus continues with some practical insight about how to abide. So the first one is to abide in Christ is to trust in his position. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But, my, but by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says right in the front end of that, the next way to abide is that uh, if my words remain in you, that's, a, that's an abiding language. So number two, to abide in Christ is to know God's word. To trust in his position and to know God's word. God's word is life-giving. The scripture tells us that it's, it's nourishing. Paul writes to the new believers in Colossians, uh, to the Colossi believers, that they should hide God's word in their heart, that it, it would be like a nourishment or an enrichment. It, it dwells in us richly. If my words remain in you, 
Man, I can't tell you what it was like when Amanda and I, my wife and I, when we were engaged and we lived long, she lived in Pennsylvania, I lived in Michigan, we didn't have our own computers, we weren't doing email and all that stuff, we certainly didn't have texting or anything like that, and long distance was, I think, $1,000 a minute, does anybody remember that? And she used to write, how do I explain that? She used to write these things on paper called letters, and a stamp, I don't even know how to describe it to you, but I know it was life-giving to receive the words, as it is with anyone that sends me a note to church or a friend sends me a note, I love it. It gives life. It gives, it breathes something into the relationship. It's the same now when we take in God's word. So now we're taking God's word, not in to try to please him, as if that pleases him somehow, but because we're in a relationship with him. We find that it's life-giving. It gives life to the soul. When have you experienced this? Let's test the point. When have you experienced God's word bringing nourishment to your soul? Does anybody have a scripture that like, changed them or uplifted them? Just say the scripture. Does anyone have one? We can engage because we're friends. And what is the point of Jeremiah 29? What does it say? For I know the plans I have for you. So we can trust that God's sovereign. He has a plan. Is that right? Anyone else have one? What's the point of that? So God's doing something new. You're a new creation. The old is gone. Here comes the new. Cool. Be still and know that I am God was a comfort to you. To trust in his position. Does anyone have one up there? Let's not be ashamed. Go ahead. That's awesome. A promise of his presence. Fear not, for I am with you. What's, a, what's that point? So God's discipline doesn't seem that great at the time, but in time it breeds a harvest of goodness, of peace, righteousness. Good. Man, I have the same for me. To cast my cares to the Lord because he cares for me. To not be afraid to be a witness for the Lord because it won't be me speaking, but the Spirit of my Father speaking through me. To remember that trust the Lord forever for the Lord. The Lord is the God eternal. The rock eternal. What is yours? See, these scriptures, they're not always promises or chastisements. There's scriptures that God uses as Christ's words dwell richly in us. They nourish us. They give us life. And Jesus has to command his disciples, command you and I to be connected to remember. So to abide in Christ then is to know his word. John, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, that the truth, and he is the truth, and his words are truth, that the truth will set us free. What do we need to be freed from? Selfishness, pride, worry, fear, anger, impatience, bitterness, you name it, right? All the things that we struggle with, there's answers, solutions found in Christ and his word. Why would we hesitate to take in God's word? Why do we have to be commanded? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For God so loved the world that he gave. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. He is the lifter of my head. Lay your life before the truth of God's word. If it's not his word, then it's someone else's. Every time. There's a lot of words out there, aren't there? A lot of people like to give tips. Christians are notorious for giving terrible advice. We usually give the advice that we like to receive, so we placate. You should look out for yourself. You look out for number one. But only the truth and knowing and depending on the truth, capital T, will set us free and lead us to producing life change, producing fruit. Paul tells the new believers again in Colossians to allow God's word to dwell in you richly. To abide in Christ then is to live, feed off, follow God's word. I remember in the scriptures, the, the prophet says to eat this scroll. It's like this imagery to take in God's word. 
And there's more in that verse. Look again, John uh, chapter 15. So the second was to take it, to know God's word, to abide in his, to know his word. But then Jesus shares another right in that same, same passage. Verse 7 again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Then go to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus has gone from taking in God's word to talking about prayer, talking about communicating with him. So to abide in Christ is to practice his presence, which is a small definition of prayer. And last week, our lead pastor, Scott Lear, shared a great message on, on the commands of to ask, seek, and knock, which is ask about prayer. I challenge you, if you missed it, to take some time this week to consider that message. Jesus' instruction then, doesn't it seem strange? For to ask whatever we want sounds amazing. <laughs> Seemingly without conditions and limitations. What do you ask for? What do you ask of God and how is it different than your Christmas list when you were a child? But in this context, it's asking for whatever will lead to abiding in and producing fruit. Abiding in Christ and producing fruit to produce fruit in our lives for the sake of others and for God's glory. So when we go to pray, we can pray confidently that God will answer, Lord, would you help me be poor? Would you help me be meek, which is power under control? Would you help me be willing to be persecuted for your sake? Would you help me be willing to be generous with my time, talent, and treasure? Those are the things that he loves to come through. Would you help me to be bold with the gospel? Give me a spirit of, of love and faith and courage. He loves to come through on that. But I'm not sure if he'll give you the Mercedes that you asked for. He might, because he's crazy generous. He is, isn't he? He might. I don't know. I can't find that in here. But it's praying for things that are aligned with his will. He loves to come through. He's the perfect father. This command and promise of asking receiving involves such intimate union and harmony with Christ that nothing will be asked out of accord with the mind of God. So we have to abide. We have to be connected to him to even know what to ask him for. Because of that connection, asking for what he wills in our life, prayer then is answered, which puts God's glory on display as he answers. When have you experienced that? Your answer is a praise to God. See, when we fail to be a people of prayer, individually or corporately, we're failing to practice the presence of God and missing out on intimacy with him. We're often then, we're failing then to abide. And ultimately we find ourselves out of tune with him as he often guides and directs to those times of prayer. When have you experienced that? Have you experienced that before, an intimacy with the Lord in prayer, and you, you sense his presence, and you know that you're taking in his word, and you know that you're speaking with the King of kings and the Lord of lords? When you sense a lack of nourishment in your relationship with Jesus, and there are desert times, don't stop communicating with him. The world or your flesh, the accuser might want to think, see, God's ignoring you, he's distant. Open theism. He wishes he could be a part of your life, but he's not. He created all things and he stepped back. That's a lie. Keep speaking. Keep talking. Keep listening. Keep being nourished by him. Because if we're not speaking and listening to him, we're speaking and listening to someone else. Every time. If we're not taking his words in, we're taking someone else's word in. We're not trusting him in his position. We're trusting someone else in that same position. Every time. And as an aside... Why would we hesitate to ignore, why would we hesitate or ignore God's invitation to commune with him? You think about you. Why, why are there times that you hesitate to speak with him? Why are there times that you, 
Why can't you find a way to be in, communi- in communication with him? He loves you. In fact, that's what Jesus says. It's brilliant teaching. The next verse, look at verse 9. Chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How does Jesus love? Say it, please. As the Father loved him, which was unconditional. The text tells us. So Jesus is saying, trust in my position. Take in my word. Let my words remain in you. Communicate with me. Ask whatever you need according to, to bear fruit. I'll give it to you. Because just as my Father loved me, I love you. Abide in my love. As if that might sound like you have to like, you might fall out, like Christ might fall out of love with you. That's such a crazy concept. It has nothing to do with God. He can't fall out of love with you. He, he loves, okay? But we can try to reject or step aside and not root ourselves in that love. We can try to root ourselves in some other kind of legalism or something trying to earn God's love when he's already lavished on us through Christ. But the command are the commands, and yet the backing of those is that God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not have to be eternally separated from him and perish in such a way, but have eternal life with him. God loves you. He says, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, so I love you. Love is a choice to yield to his best interest. And he demonstrated his love toward you in that while we were sinners, you and I, Christ died for us. That is love. And Jesus will speak about this toward the end of this text. Do you ever have it in your mind sometimes that God doesn't love you? How did you come to that conclusion in your infinite wisdom that God doesn't? For me, I'd imagine it's because I look at my circumstances and I don't like them. So then I wrongly accuse God of not loving me simply because I'm enduring or experiencing something difficult that I don't like. But God is a perfect father. And his son, Jesus Christ, loves perfectly. I think about my own children. I have five. I love them as well as I can. Our youngest didn't, didn't have a father in his life, and so we pursued him. And I can tell you, I kiss this kid a thousand times a day, and he hates it. He's like, get off me. Oh, he's, yeah, he's just, I'm all over him. And God's better than that. He's better than the way you love your baby. Can you grasp it? I'm, I'm, I'm only on the beginning. I'm 31 years old in Christ. I'm 38 years old. I might only be to the beginning of understanding some of his love. My doubt isn't his fault. John Owen, the great theologian of the 1600s, said concerning God's love, the greatest sorrow, burden, unkindness to God is to not believe that he loves you. Amen. So Jesus instructs us more on how to, how to abide. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, we'll put there. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The next way to abide then, to abide in Christ, is to obey his commands. So now we have practicing his position, taking in his word or knowing his word, practicing his presence through prayer, and then obeying. Jesus says in John chapter 14, those that love him, obey him. Now a lot of people say they like Jesus. 
Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my homeboy, whatever. But Jesus defines love toward him as obey. Engage in the relationship to do as I have instructed. So if we're not obeying him, we're obeying someone else. (laughs) What has God asked you to do that you've been fighting? Do you know it already, probably? To share the gospel with someone that you know you love but you've just been afraid or to give up yourself in some way, sacrifice of time or treasure, talent, something like that. To engage your children, dads, that they might be instructed by you by the way of the word. What is it? See, we're in desperate need for his instruction and his mission. His commands then are for our good. His commands are for the purpose so one of the ways that we can abide is, to, is simply to obey. If you'd like a childlike definition of obedience, here it is. You can write it down and you can teach us to others. You ready? Obedience is willingly doing what you've been asked to do. Here is an illustration of not doing that. I'd like for you to clean up your room. You've asked for the fifth time. And the response is, that's not willingly. You think of the story of Jonah, if you know the Old Testament at all. That wasn't willingly. Okay, he did go. In time. What's God asking you to do? You know the command. You know actually it's something really specific for you to do as it relates to his word, but it is specific. What's the problem? Jesus continues with another one. Another way to abide. Look at the next verse, verse 12. This is my commandment. So we're looking at Christ's commandment. What are your commands, Christ? The ultimate command. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Tell us how you love Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The last one from this teaching today, the last way of abiding in Christ, to abide in Christ is to imitate his love. How, then? Because there's a lot of talk in the Bible about loving, and we know we should, and we could get an A on doing a Bible test about love and questions about love. But what does it look like to love like Jesus? Well, actually, Jesus teaches this in the text. Number one, if you want to take some notes, how should I love like Christ? Number one, love is sacrificial. Jesus describes this when he says that there's no greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. It means in behalf of or in place of his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus is moments away from doing. That makes God honest. He's not disingenuous. He's not asking you to do anything else that he hasn't himself done. Amazing. We serve an amazing, righteous, loving, holy God. So to love like this, if you don't think, okay, Jesus, I want to love, I wanna, I'm going to pick number five, I want to love like you love. Help me know how to do it. Number one, it's going to be something with sacrifice. Love is sacrificial. It does not demand its own way, the scriptures tell us. Love is a choice to yield to those best interests. That's another expression Jesus teaches, number two, that love is obedient to the commands of God, which we looked at already. Obedience is discipleship. Like, you can't have a discipleship, you can't be a follower of Jesus if, we're not, if you don't obey doesn't work. So an expression of love is obedience. Number three, another way of loving as Christ says, is love communicates the truth. Jesus says the phrase, I have told you everything. 
He hasn't withheld anything from them. Now, they don't understand everything that's happening or what's, what's to happen. Later, they do so much that they're willing to lose their life for the sake of Christ so that some might believe. Love communicates the truth. Who needs to hear the truth from you? That would be faithing by you, I bet. I bet there's something you have to tell to somebody that's hard, and you have to step up by faith, trusting in God's position, and relying on, the, on his word and his spirit in your life that you would have enough courage to step forward to say that tough thing to someone that you love and to love them with the truth. I encourage you and challenge you. Do it and experience it. It's going to be scary. It's fun, isn't it? Because you can't fall outside of, he's got you. You can't fall outside of his hands. It's okay, you've got Christ. Another expression of love. Love takes the initiative. We know this by the phrase when Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now we know that they responded to his invitation. But love takes the initiative. We see this with the pillars of biblical manhood to protect, provide, initiate, and teach. Men are supposed to take the initiative. But we all take the initiative in pursuing people that they might know the gospel as the gospel has changed our lives. So let's ask this question of ourselves as good Bible students. Who are you pursuing with the love of Christ? So we had our missionaries up here. Some people are pursuing people in Madagascar, Panama, the University of Tennessee. Is it your children, your neighbors, co-workers? Who is it? We use phrases around Southbridge like, who's your one? Who's your person that you're pursuing that you love? You just want to see them know Christ so, so desperately. Who is it? That's a way now to get practical about putting the scriptures into practice. Let's just not know the word. Let's not just look into the word like a mirror and then walk away and forget what we saw. Let's encourage one another to live out what we see. So as we abide in Christ, we, we come to understand what it means to love others the way that Christ loves. As we love others, we become a witness to the world, as John chapter 17 talks about. And then people we know are desperate to experience and know this kind of love from you as you've received it from Christ. Isn't that true? So the message is succinct here jesus loves you you need jesus if you love jesus you'll depend on him through his word and prayer and obedience and love and as a result the mission will be realized by these simple practical ideas which are all based off a common enormous truth apart from christ we can do nothing if we don't believe that okay if we don't believe that apart from christ we can do nothing then all the bible study and prayer and going on short-term mission trips all the obedience that becomes actually a religion, a way to try to get to God as if God didn't come to us first. If we believe that we can do things apart from being connected to the vine, then what happens is that we just end up becoming a moralist. Because our motivation isn't one of dependence, but one of the consistency of our own acts. And we will be powerless to carry out the mission. I've tried in my own flesh to plead with people to turn their way, and it yielded nothing. It was like I was talking to someone who was flint-faced. Pleading. I've got to depend on the Lord as it's happening, direct people to Christ. What's the ultimate point? Verse 8 shows us the ultimate point. In John chapter 15, verse 8, it's really this. All this has to do with one thing, for the glory of God. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be my disciples. So prove, so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and grace extended toward us in Christ. Lord, I pray for each person here that is here by your purposes, God, that we would leave knowing that we've had an encounter with you through your word and that you would...
do life change in us, that you change us from the inside out, that we would live differently as a result of what you're doing on the inside and that we would truly be connected to the vine that is Jesus Christ on a dependent daily basis. He is all we need. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We pray these things expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.